So with all of that in mind, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever traveled to another country, to a, a different city? And if you have traveled to a different country, or maybe in this country, a different city, what do you do to prepare yourself for that visit? Maybe you go online and you look at some of the must-see places, or, or if you're like my wife and I, whenever we go to a new city, we like to get on the, the bus, the on-off bus, and there's, they're all over the world, and we travel the city, and we let people who know about the city tell us, well, there's a place that you should stop. There's a really interesting place of note. You, you could go there and do this there, or you could go here and do this there. Uh, and so we want to hear from the experts. What, what's really important? What's the, the highlights, the must-dos of the country or the city in which we're traveling to? In January, we'll be going to Israel as a church. Well, you do have to pay for it if you want to come. Uh, but there are 15 of us, I think, from this church who are, are going. It's going to be very exciting. And one of my roles is to say, well, these are the sites that we just have to see. And then when we get to those sites, I'm, we're going to go to the Bible and say, this is what happened here. In fact, we're even going to be going, I was telling my daughter as we were taking communion, we're going to go to the very rock where Jesus died. That's a must-see place in the world. And the Bible is kind of like that too. All of the Bible is the Word of God, but it, it's a big book, isn't it? It's a long book. And I would want you to see everything. I would want you to read every word and every verse and, and get acquainted with everything. But there are some books that are just must-reads. You, you must read this book. You must read these passages if you're a Christian. That, that you can't really understand the gospel without it. And I would say the book of Romans is one of those books. So can you preach the, the gospel from the book of Numbers? Of course you can. And, and actually at Frontline tonight, we're going to do just that. The men are going to gather. We're going to go through the entire book of Numbers. We're going to see the glory of the gospel in the book of Numbers. But I don't know if I would say that Numbers is a must-read on the same level as Romans. Romans is that place in the Bible where God has condensed and summarized all of salvation history. Everything that he sent the Lord Jesus to do, he explains it in the book of Romans. We've taken four weeks off as we've revisited what it means to be the church, but now we're going to get back into the book of Romans, and on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I know next week is officially Thanksgiving, but we're celebrating Thanksgiving right now. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, we're going to recap the first eight chapters. What does the gospel, what is the gospel according to Romans chapters one through eight? So, a very quick overview of the whole book. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul outlines God's wrath. God is wrathful against sin. He will punish sin, and he will punish sinners. God is full of wrath against all unrighteousness. But near the end of chapter 3, he says, but there is a propitiation for those who have faith. We'll talk about what propitiation is. In, in brief, it is this. It got, Jesus absorbs the wrath on the cross for those who believe in him. Chapters 4 and 5 are about justification. Justification is, uh, what does this mean? It's a legal declaration from the throne of God in heaven that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be considered by God to be righteous. That's justification. You are you are declared to be righteous. And we learn about justification in chapters 4 and 5. In chapters 6 and 7, we learn about sanctification. 
So justification is a declaration of legal righteousness before God. Sanctification is the transformation of your nature so that you are made to be in your nature holy. Chapter 8 is the, the goal, the end of sanctification, when you will be made perfectly holy, body and soul. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul revisits the idea of election, that, that this gospel is not for everyone. God has selected, chosen some for this justification, sanctification, and glorification from before the world began. And he explains that in three very difficult chapters, chapters 9 through 11. These first 11 chapters constitute all of the doctrine of the gospel, all, all the things that we ought to believe. And then through chapters 12 through 16, we find out the response. That is, we are, in light of the things that we believe, this is how we ought to respond. This is how we ought to behave. This is right living. This is... This is how we live our lives in light of what God has done for us. God initiates. He is the mover and the shaker in chapters 1 through 11. And we are the ones who respond to all that God has done in chapters 12 through 16. So the first 11 chapters, we call them orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. These are the things that we as Christians must believe. And then chapters 12 through 16, this is orthopraxy. That is, in light of what we believe, this is the, these are the things that we as Christians must uh, endeavor to behave or to live out. So that's the book of Romans. Today we're going to review chapters 1 through 8. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the book of Romans. And I pray for those who are just sitting in for the first time that haven't been here for the last... 10 months of preaching, uh, that you would help them to glean something of these first eight chapters. Remind us of the gospel so that we can be glad in Christ and respond to all that you've done for us. Glorify yourself, Lord, and speak through me for the sake of this church and for the sake of your great and awesome name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The gospel begins perhaps in an unexpected way. The gospel begins with a declaration that God is angry with the human race. God is angry and wrathful because of our sin. He doesn't just look down from heaven and say, well, you know, they've made a few mistakes and I'll just look the other way. Or, or maybe I can just sweep their sin under the rug. No, the gospel begins with a declaration of God's wrath, which is hard for us. It's hard for us in, in our culture to, to begin to understand the gospel in those terms. We want a God who's like a big cosmic teddy bear. We want a God who's like a genie where we ask him for things and he gives us things. Where we're having a bad day and we go to him and he consoles us. But that's not the beginning of the gospel. God is a good father who gives good gifts. God cares about the downtrodden the victims of, of other people's sins. He cares when you're having a bad day or a bad season of life. But if you're not in Christ, there's nothing of God for, for any of us. We have to be in Christ. So the gospel begins 
with a view of what the world would be like without the gospel. The gospel begins with what would reality be if there was no Jesus Christ? If Jesus didn't come for us, what would God uh, be like toward us? Would he be that big comfort grandfather in the sky? Would he be intimately concerned with all of our difficulties? Would he be able to just look the other way? And the answer is no. We see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is even now revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. He's angry. Not the way we get angry. He is a righteous anger, a controlled anger. It's a controlled burn, so to speak. But he's wrathful against a world that hates him. Why would he be so wrathful? Well, we learn a little bit more in verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, that is the human race, we knew God, but we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they, that is us, the human race, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the, the heart of sin is a worship problem. The, the, the heart of sin is that we know that there's a God in heaven. There are no true atheists in this world. God has made human beings to know that there is a God in heaven. And yet, even though every one of us knows that there's a God in heaven, even though every one of us knows that he deserves all honor, praise, and worship, although we know that there's a universal moral law that we ought to submit ourselves to, we decide to worship creation rather than the creator. We decide that we want to worship ourselves instead of the God who made us. We want it our way. We want to be our own kings and queens. We will not stand for a God who tells us that he is great and awesome and infinite and that we depend on him and that we ought to worship him. We hate that if we're not in Christ. And so we worship the things that God has made rather than worshiping God. And this comes in all kinds of forms. Now, there might have been some Jews in the Roman church who said, well, that's not me. I know that there's a God in heaven. I worship him through the law. I try to obey the prophets. I, I read the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. And so chapter 2 is directed to them. And he says, you, you think you're better off than all of those Gentile people who are worshiping the creation. But in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, he says, you who boast in the law. That is, you who think that you are right with the God of the universe because you have the law that he has revealed. You dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So the Gentiles are worshiping creation. The Jews are trying to worship God, and yet they're breaking his commands. And so the Gentiles say, well, if that's who God is, and if that, those are God's people, I want none of it. And so in chapter 3, Paul continues, so what are we to say? Verse 9. Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No. 
Not at all. We've already charged that all, that is both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is dealing with groups. In chapters 1, he's really dealing with Gentiles. He's saying every Gentile knows that there's a God, and he's the God of, of Israel, and, and knows that, that God should be worshipped, but they're not worshipping him. And then in chapter 2, and even the Jews who know of God are breaking his rules, and so blaspheming his name. And then in chapter 3, he gets really specific. He says there's not even one person, not one individual since Adam, not one person in history that has worshipped God the way God deserves to be worshipped. And so in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That is, no one can stand before the throne of God and say, I am innocent, I am righteous, you must let me into your heaven. No, every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This, this is a dark beginning, isn't it? Every human being has fallen short of what God expects from us as a race of creatures. He made us to represent him in his universe and we have rebelled against him. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you go through the motions of religion. If there is no Jesus Christ, we are all guilty before God. This is, the, this is why the gospel is offensive to the world. This is why there are churches that try to bypass this, this foundation and say, well, just come and, and enjoy us and enjoy God without dealing with the sin problem. But the gospel starts with a very sobering reality that we are all sinners gone astray, that we are all defaulted toward hell, not heaven. And that what the world says is you're going to heaven unless you do something really bad. What the Bible says is you have all disqualified yourself from heaven. You are all going to hell. Unless God does something. It's exactly the opposite. The default destination for the human race is condemnation. Because we've all sinned. This isn't nice. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable and it, so it should be. But now we move to propitiation. That's the bad news. But now for the rest of, of chapters 3 through 8, we get the good news. What's God going to do about this? See, God made us. We rebelled against him. But he never stopped loving us. He, he never said, well, I'm going to allow the sin of, of human beings to thwart my good plan or, or to destroy my good universe. I made it good. Human beings have ruined it, and they've ruined themselves, but I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take it back, and I'm going I'm to take them back, and I'm going to restore them to their place of honor and glory over all of the things that I have made. How are you going to do it, God? How are you going to restore and redeem and, and save the very universe and the very people that sin has corrupted? Well, we get a peek of it here in, in propitiation. In chapter 3, verses 23 and 25, we are reminded, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, verse 24, we are justified, that is, 
declared to be righteous by His grace as a gift. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can do. We we will not ever improve ourselves through some self-help routine so that we merit this. This is the grace of God that justifies us. It's a gift. Well, how do we get this gift? It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word that means buy back. Jesus came to buy us back. When we sin, we go into this infinite sin death. Debt, sorry. We're, we're, we're in debt to God, and so Jesus came to pay off our debt, to buy us back. This gift is the paying off of our sin debt. We are redeemed in Jesus Christ. In verse 25, in fact, it's this Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is a really important word, propitiation. When Jesus hung on the cross, remember the first part of the gospel is that God is angry, God is wrathful. But it's a controlled wrath. And God actually held back the fullness of his wrath until Jesus hung on the cross. And then in that moment of history, as Jesus was on Golgotha's hill, and his hands and his feet were pinned to the tree, he had a crown of thorns on his head reminding us of the curse of our sin. He was the king of our curse. And he became a curse. And this is what God did. All of the wrath that all of the human race deserved from Adam to the last person, God poured it out on Jesus. So that anyone who puts their faith in Christ, there's no wrath left for them. God has poured out the wrath that he had directed toward each of us. And he says, I'm going to pour that wrath, so I'll use myself as an example. The wrath that I deserve from God because of my sin, God said, I'm going to take that wrath and I'm going to redirect it. I'm going to drop it on Jesus as he hung there on the cross. That's propitiation. It's called satisfaction. There's no more wrath left. It's all been poured out. So now, when I, when I come before the judgment seat of God, because I'm in Christ, and I, I'm just waiting for the wrath that I deserve, God says, there's none left. It's an empty cup. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath that I should have drank, that you should have drank. That's good news. No wrath for those who are in Christ. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Don't want to say much about this, but I think this is interesting. As much as we see a wrathful God in the Old Testament, you know, there's that characterization of God, which I think is overblown and and mostly false. The most wrathful moment in the Bible is when Jesus was on the cross. Second most wrathful moment in the Bible is in Revelation at the final judgment. The Old Testament has nothing on the New Testament when it comes to wrath. And that actually creates a theological problem. We have people like Abraham and David, which we're going to talk about in a moment, who are sinning in spectacular ways, and and God just loves them. And so that creates a theological problem. How can God be just and righteous if he doesn't give Abraham and David and all the rest the wrath that they deserve? Well, God held it back, and he dropped the wrath that Abraham deserved, the wrath that David deserved, and all the others on Jesus on the cross. And that resolves the tension of why isn't God more wrathful in the Old Testament? That's propitiation. 
Now we move forward, and, and propitiation is sort of this umbrella. Within propitiation, we see that there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification. What does it mean? It means that, that we all uh, have to stand before the judgment seat of God, and God is going to have to declare us to be either righteous or guilty. Justification means although we should be declared guilty, when we stand there, God will say, I see no sin in you. I see nothing that would condemn you. You are as righteous as my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of his righteous deeds get credited to our legal account. It's amazing. So, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Paul's going to deal with, we all know that Abraham is saved. We all know that Abraham was righteous. How did he attain it? Was he without sin? That's the question of verse 1. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But he doesn't have anything to boast about before God. Because he was a sinner. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Let me just insert here. Does the Scripture say that Abraham was counted righteous because he was righteous in his works? No. Now back to the text. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He deserves them. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it's his faith that is counted as righteousness. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, if Abraham was to stand before the judgment seat of God and just plead his life on his own merits, his own works, his own behavior, God would have no choice but to say, you're guilty. You have uh, an incalculable sin debt that you owe me, and you are condemned to hell. That, that's if we're in a merit-based, works-based, earn-your-place-in-heaven paradigm. But we all know that Abraham is the father of faith. We all know that God loved him and considered him to be righteous. How did that work itself out? Well, God gave him some promises, and, and Abraham said, I believe you. And what Paul says here is that is the pattern. That is the, the, the basis of everyone who is saved. God gives promises, and then we either believe them or we don't. If we believe the promises of God, God says, well, I'm going to consider you to be righteous because you believed me. Not because you did anything. Not because you're actually righteous, but you believed me. That's all I, that's all I want from you. When I make a promise to you, I want you to believe that I am God and I am able to bring it about. Verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, says David, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We also know that David is the great king. But if David was before the judgment seat of God, would God look at him and say, well, you know, you ha are a man after my own heart. What does that mean? I, does it mean I looked down, I saw, well, there's one boy looking after some sheep outside of Bethlehem, and he doesn't sin. 
He loves me the way all of the human race should have loved me. That's not what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And David knew that. David said to be a man after God's own heart means this. It's to be one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. It's to be one against who uh, the Lord will not count his sin. To be a man after God's own heart is to have one's sins covered. It's God who puts his heart on men and women like David and says, in spite of your sinfulness, I love you. It's God's heart on David, not David's heart on God. I love you, says God to David, therefore you're a man after whom I put my heart. The English idiom just is bad exegesis. And so David says, yeah, I'm righteous, not because I actually earned it, but because God chose me, God loved me, God covered my sins, and I believed him. I believed him. That's justification. Continuing in chapter 5, we learn a little bit more about justification. Uh, we, we find out in chapter 5 that there's this great contrast between Adam and Jesus. Adam sinned in the garden. And because of his sin, God condemned the whole human race. It took one sin to condemn all of us. And the flip side, though, is really important. Jesus came as the second Adam, and through his one act of obedience, that is going to the cross, God saved all of us who are in Christ. And then there's this weird thing where, where God says, uh, even though it only took one sin to condemn everybody, he sent Moses to give us 613 laws. Why? To prove just how guilty we are. He gave us more laws to break so that our guilt would mount up higher and higher. Why? The guiltier we were, the greater the salvation we would require. And so God actually gives the law through Moses to show us your sin is so great that it's going to take a great Savior to save you. That's what we find out here. Chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is, Adam sinned and every human being was condemned, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, in brackets, who are in Christ. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That is, God gave the law through Moses to make us more and more guilty. We, we sin more because we break more laws. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me just say this this really key point right again because this is what will introduce us to sanctification god gave the law to increase our trespasses god increased our trespasses to increase our guilt before him he increased our guilt before him so that he could showcase the immeasurable death depth of his grace all the more in other words god says sin more and my grace will abound all the more he could have given us a thousand more laws and what Jesus did on the cross would cover all of that extra sin all the more. So 
I know, don't get ahead of me. Stay in justification. In justification, this is really crucial. There is no amount of sin that is too much to be redeemed by Jesus Christ on the cross. You sin more and grace will abound all the more to cover your sin so that you can be declared righteous before God. No one can say, well, I have have gone over the line where if I had just sinned that much, then maybe God could forgive me, but I've sinned a little bit more. I am out of the reach of God's grace. That is impossible. There is no amount of sin that is beyond the reach of a gracious God. That's true for us individually, but it's true for us as a race. The human race. There is nothing that God cannot forgive. I couldn't calculate all of the sin in the history of the human race, but God says sin more and grace will abound all the more. That's justification. Because justification deals with our legal standing before God, and what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to pay back the sin debt that we owe. Now that creates a theological problem, doesn't it? What's the problem? Well, now we transition to sanctification. This is where the chapter break between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is the best chapter break in the Bible. If you have a, like a Sharpie marker, just put a line through there. We're dealing with two totally different doctrines that are related in Christ but they're dealing with two different things. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul has said, sin more and grace will abound all the more. That's justification. Now, take a look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I think so. That, that's my understanding of justification. Sin more, grace will abound more. In fact, God gave the law so that we would sin more, so that he could show us that he has a lot of grace. But what is Paul's answer? Should we then, if we're in Christ, just go out and sin more, that grace may abound? If the gospel was only justification, we would have to answer yes. Yes. If the gospel is simply justification to be declared righteous before God, yes, go and sin, sin, sin. God will justify, justify, justify. He has that much grace. See, this is where the gospel becomes tricky. This is where Paul is always dancing right up to the cliff. And then people were slandering him, saying, you're just telling people to go and sin. That's what, if we ended the sermon right now, if I get struck dead, Jay, you come up here and finish, because this is crucial that we finish the gospel. The gospel is more than justification. So how does Paul answer his question? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. God forbid it. Absolutely not. You cannot take grace for a spin that way. You cannot go out and just keep sinning. Yeah, but Paul, you just said uh, sin more that grace may abound more. Now you're saying don't do it. Why? Well, not because of justification, but because of sanctification. Continuing on in verse 2, He asks this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Should we just go out and sin more that grace may abound? No. Why? 
because you've died to sin. It makes, it makes no sense. You're not in Christ if you want to just go out and sin more. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is such an important truth. In addition to, so this is sort of like a game show. You get justification. You get propitiation. But in addition to that, God gives us sanctification. What is sanctification? The moment that you exercise the gift of faith that God gives you. God gives you the faith that you need to believe in his promises. You exercise that and you are justified. But more than that, you die. This is impossible to understand apart from the Holy Spirit. So if you're not understanding where I'm going, pray to the Holy Spirit. Let me just pray for you now because this is so glorious. God, help us to understand sanctification, that we died with Christ. I know my words will be limited, but I pray that your glory and your truth will shine through by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Maybe there will be someone here who is understanding this for the first time ever. God, may it be. I pray this in Christ's name. The moment that God calls you and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God unites you with Jesus when he was on the cross. And you actually die on the cross with Christ. You die. That heart that loved sin, that heart that hated God, that heart that was bent on sin, it is crucified with Christ. It is killed you die you must die which is why the world hates the gospel we're saying you have to die but the good news is once you die you are raised up to newness of life and in that moment that you are called and god gives you the gift of faith that you believe in the promises you believe that jesus died for you and he justifies you he kills you and he raises you up in your soul your heart is made new. You're a new creature in Christ. And, and so the Old Testament talks about this a number of ways. Your heart is circumcised. That is, the sin nature in your heart is cut and thrown away. It's nailed to the cross so that all that's left is a holy heart. You have a heart that beats for God for the first time in your existence. And you are finally alive. The heart of stone, a, a stone does not beat. God takes the heart of stone out and he gives you a heart of flesh that can beat. And it beats spiritual blood. Your, your heart is washed. It was polluted with sin. It is washed clean. So that from this moment on, you are holy from the heart. You have a new heart. A brand new heart. And you get to start fresh as a new creature in Christ. You've died and you've come back to life. And that's why we go down here and it says uh, in verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So if we sin more, grace will abound all the more according to justification. Therefore, should we just go out and sin more that grace may abound? God forbid. Why? Because if you've been justified, you have also died with Christ. And you've been made new. You have a new heart. You've been made obedient from the heart. So the proof of your justification is sanctification. And no one 
who has been sanctified, no one who has died and come back to life loves sin anymore. And you say, well, hold on a minute. I, I still am tempted to sin. Yeah, we'll get there. But you know what's interesting to me? Chapter 6, all the way through, halfway through chapter 7, Paul is just nailing this idea. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You used to be a slave to sin. You loved sin. You were a rebel. You hated God. But now, you have a new heart. You're a new creature. You've been raised up with Christ. You love God. You're obedient from the heart. You're a slave of righteousness. And he doesn't deal with the tension that we all feel until halfway through chapter 7. But finally, halfway through chapter 7, to our great relief, we can all exhale, God said, or Paul says, God says through Paul, and Paul says, but it's not a finished work yet. Everything I've said about your new heart is true, but your heart is wrapped in flesh. Uh, your, sin, your sin nature lingers, and there's a battle between who you are on the inside and who are, you are on the more surface. And he calls the one the heart and the other the flesh. It's hard to know exactly what the flesh is, but the flesh is not the heart. And the battle for the first time in your existence is not in the heart. The battle is between a righteous, holy heart and the lingering sin tendencies in your flesh. But the the more core identity, the the more core you, the real you, always loves God and loves righteousness. So in chapter 7, we go down to verse 15. And Paul puts himself forward as an example. He says, I don't even understand my own actions. I've been telling you about this this new creature that we are in Christ. I've told you about the obedient heart. And yet I don't even understand myself. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I want you to notice that, though. That shows you something has happened to this man's heart. He hates the sin that he does from the heart. That's, if you hate your sin, that's, that's good evidence of, of a, a new heart. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, see this distinction. Paul is not saying that he is not responsible for his sin. He's saying, it's not the real me, though. The real me is my, my new heart. My new heart doesn't want to do this. It's not that me that is sinning. It's the sin that still lives in me, and I'm still responsible for it, but that's not the real me. For I desire, might I say in the heart, to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He says it a second time. Paul, Paul is not schizophrenic. He, he, is, he is explaining your experience in mine in this Christian life. At, at the core of who we are, if we are in Christ, we don't want to sin. We love righteousness, which is why we cannot just go out and sin more that grace may abound, because we don't want to. It's not that God lacks the grace to cover all of our sin. It's that we've died and been made new, and we don't want to. Except that we do still want to. But we don't really want to. We just kind of want to. It's not really me that wants to sin. It's that other part of me that wants to sin. Therefore, it's not really me who is sinning. It's the rest of me that is sinning. It's the sin in me. 
And so that's, that's the Christian life. That's why we need to be filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness for one another. Though we want to do what's right, we will not bring it about perfectly. And so we're on a journey. We're on a journey to become more like Christ. But we are already like Christ from the hearts. That's the point that we need to focus in on. That's sanctification. Whereas justification is a new legal standing before God. In justification, nothing changes in you except for your standing before God. It's a positional righteousness. But in sanctification, you've been transformed. You've actually died. You've been made new. You have a new nature. And last thing I want to say about this before we move to our last part on glorification is if you have been sanctified, if you have already died with Christ, you have actually already died, which means you're already in eternal life. So when your body stops working, you don't die. You transition to a new location, and you are more alive at the moment that your body stops working than you are right now in some ways. Because the flesh goes to the grave and your righteous heart ascends to the heavens above to be with Christ. So we need not fear death because we've already died. How awesome is that truth? Your death already happened. When did it happen? When you believed in Jesus Christ. You are already in the first leg of your eternal life. So let us go out into this world and be bold. Let's take risks for the sake of Christ. Because we want more people to die with Christ so that they can be raised with Christ. Let's not be afraid of death. Let's live for Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because we don't really die. We've already died. Which is why the law can't touch us. The law can only touch you until you die. It can only condemn you once. We've already been condemned. We've already died. The law has had its authority. Now we are in the first leg of eternal life. He finishes sanctification with this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's longing to throw off his body. He's longing to go be with Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. One day Jesus will come and raise us from the dead. One day Jesus Christ will come and transform those who are alive at his coming into his glorious presence. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my true self, but with my flesh I still struggle. I still serve the law of sin. Glory. Now, sanctification and glorification are related. So whereas justification and sanctification are two different doctrines that are united in Christ, glorification is the finished work of sanctification. Glorification is when we are made perfect. In our spirits, we've already been made perfect, obedient from the heart, uh, but we still have the flesh, that is, this tendency to sin, and we still are in these tents, these clay pots, these broken vessels that get sick, get old, and die. Glorification is when we are made perfectly righteous in our nature, body and soul, where there's no longer a struggle, where all of a sudden we are, our bodies are raised up in glory. And we always desire and do righteousness with no conflict. Unless the Lord returns, I will die. This body will stop working. So I know I won't die, but this body will. And if you're alive when that happens, you'll put this body in the ground. 
And the world will look and say, death wins. Death took that man down. That man preached the gospel, but at the, end, at the end of the day, he died like every person dies, like every animal dies. So what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That is, on the day that Jesus comes back, Jesus descends from heaven with the sound of a trumpet, and he calls for all of the dead in Christ to be raised bodily from the dead. And this body that you put in the ground will come back to life. No grave is going to hold this body down. And it's not going to come back like this, weak and insignificant and mortal it's going to come back in power immortality imperishability and glory and this body that i'm in now will be transformed to be like the body of the resurrected jesus christ that's awesome and, and so we go back do you believe the promises of god do you believe that god can do this do you believe that the god who created the universe is stronger than death do you believe that though you put your body in the ground God will bring it out of the ground. That's glorification. And that's why Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, creation, it can't wait for us to be raised bodily from the dead. Why? Well, because there's future glory for the universe, too. Chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. The world wants to give birth to the dead. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So much to say here. Let me summarize it this way. On the day that Jesus raises the saints from the dead bodily and in glory, that begins the beginning of the end. And ultimately what God is going to do is he's going to consume this universe in fire, 2 Peter 3. Then he's going to judge the living and the dead. Everyone's going to be raised up and judged. And then he's going to send the unsaved to the lake of fire. We are going to be in heaven in our glorified bodies and we will watch as God resurrects the universe in glory. And it's the same universe that's going to be raised from the dead, so to speak, and he's going to make it of a super physical quality, a, a, a quality that we cannot even conceive of now, that goes far beyond the goodness of creation in Eden and in Genesis 1. And we know this because after he does that, and we're going to watch him do it, then he's going to take heaven where we are with him in our glorified bodies and he's going to bring it and he's going to land it on earth. And then God himself will manifest the fullness of his glory in this resurrected universe. And we, like Noah and his family, will come out of heaven through, through the new Jerusalem and we will populate the new heavens and the new earth and this new heavens and this new earth, this new cosmos, this new universe will be filled with the unapproachable light of God. That's glorification. And that is what God promises in the Bible. And that's why the creation is groaning and can't wait for the, the resurrection of the sons of God. That is us. What then shall we say to these things? 
Paul says in verse 31, basically saying, are we not speechless? What started with wrath has ended in glory. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I love what Paul does here. He says, life is hard if you're a Christian. You might even be like a sheep led to the slaughter. The world might strike your body dead, but who can be against us? Kill my body. Put me in the ground. I don't die. I've been sanctified. I go to be with Christ, and he will come back. He will raise me from the dead, and then he will resurrect this universe, and I will dwell with God forever. So kill me. Lead me like a sheep to the slaughter. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You don't conquer me if you kill me for the sake of Christ. I am more than a conqueror through him who has loved me. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. So let's go. Let's go out there and share this gospel. Let's call people to believe in the promises of God because there's wrath against this world, but they, like us, can find propitiation. They, like us, can be justified. They, like us, can be sanctified. They, like us, can hope in future glory. And so what if we go and they don't like our message and they kill us? We're more than conquerors because we can't die. We've already died with Christ. And though they put our bodies in the ground, no grave can hold us. We will live in bodies, in the presence of God, and we will see his face. That's a gospel. That's worth believing in. Praise God. And so we worship. We worship. Don't be distracted or enticed by the trinkets of this world that this world has nothing to offer us compared to the glory promised to us live for christ let's pray oh god what a gospel we love your gospel and jesus we know that it costs you to deliver this good news to us and so we thank you and we worship you. You are our God. You are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. And we know that everything we have comes to us as a gift from your hands of grace. Help us to believe because we believe but help our unbelief and God help us to be bold for the sake of Christ help us to go out into this world because we have the good news that the world needs
I pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.